0: Okay, we are going to, we're going to be studying in chapter 31 of Genesis tonight. And uh, this chapter now is Jacob's great escape from the clutches of Laban. And um, there's some things that are really um Drawn out in this chapter, that I think are kind of life lessons in general, just in the way people deal with one another. And um, so we pick it up in verse one. Oh, just to you know set the set the stage. We saw in the last chapter how Jacob had approached Laban and said that okay, the time is coming where I need to go. And so they discussed about well, what should be his wages as he leaves, and they they came up with this. This plan uh, that in the manner in which Jacob managed the flocks of both Laban and himself, that those that were colored in a certain way, spotted, streaked, etc, would become part of Jacob's flock, and those that were you know solid colors would remain with with Laban and Laban was very happy with the deal because it's it's uh, the minority of the animals that would be so colored and speckled and whatnot. Um, But the Lord showed great favor to Jacob. And so uh, as time went on, Jacob was coming out trumps. and, uh, And so now comes the time when things are coming to a boil because it's becoming very obvious to Laban's family that Jacob has been favored in this deal in a mighty way. And so we pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 31, And we read, now Jacob heard the words of Laban's sons saying, Jacob has taken away all that was our father's and from what was our father's he has acquired all his wealth. And Jacob saw the countenance of Laban and indeed it was not favorable toward him as before. Now, just stopping right here for a second, what Laban's sons are saying is not true. Uh, We went, verse by verse through chapter 30 last time and it was very clear how the deal was set up and it was very clear that Laban was very satisfied with the deal because it really didn't require him to pay anything up front it really was all kind of left in the the uh, outcome of breeding of animals and and I'm sure Laban would have thought well how how does Jacob control that Uh, we did see that Jacob did some very interesting things for which we have no definite explanation as to why it worked with these striped poles and rods and things that uh, caused uh, the animals that were in good health to to mate and the ones that were more sickly to be less prolific Um, but nevertheless everybody was happy with the deal and nothing occurred in the midst of the deal that was underhanded on Jacob's part and so what really is going on here is envy on the part of Laban's sons they see Jacob prospering and for every animal that's added to Jacob's herd in their mind that's an animal that will not be in their father's herd which of course impacts their inheritance and this this is one of those instances where where envy has and coveting has the problem of poisoning the heart of the one who envies and covets but it also is, it's, it's much like a virus. It tends to spread discontent to people around it. And and this is why we read that Jacob is observing now Laban and he sees that Laban's countenance is changing. Well, it's no doubt because of the chatter of his son saying, Dad, you're getting ripped off. Look, this guy is doing you dirt. And and the Bible has so much to say about the dangers of envy and what envy indicates. It indicates a carnal nature. It indicates carnality of the worst kind for example in first corinthians 3 3 we read for where there is envy strife and division, uh, divisions among you are you not carnal and behaving like mere men you see paul is speaking directly to christians and he's pointing out the danger of when we have envy among ourselves and this is something that's so easy to creep to creep in we've got to constantly be on our guard to not be in this position of holding somebody in negative light because of some blessing that the lord has chosen to give them that that you don't have uh, in james three sixteen, james says for where envy and self-seeking exist confusion and every evil thing are there this is the kind of thing that tears ch- churches apart it's the kind of thing that puts enmity between uh ministry teams or or missions teams or or you name it amongst worship teams, you know where all of a sudden people are getting sideways about well who's who 's leading more songs who 's singing this song who 's singing that song and 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 those kind of things. Uh, love suffers long and is kind, love does not envy that 's first corinthians thirteen four We know that you know if you truly are in a relationship of love with a brother or a sister, envy can get in the midst of that and can cause all kinds of problems. And this, of course, is why... (laughs) This was the principal reason why Jesus was crucified. I, I keep saying this, but the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, they didn't crucify Jesus because he wasn't Messiah. They crucified him because he was. They found out once they were... The Pharisees and scribes were among the witnesses who saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. And they came back and they reported all this... And, and, and the, the utterance that they made as a result of this is, now we will lose our place and our nation. And in Matthew 27, 18, we read, for he knew, Jesus knew that they had handed him over because of envy. Because now Jesus has proved in a way that's that's irrefutable that everything that he said about himself is true. And if everything Jesus says about himself is true, then we don't need and we talked about this extensively at men's Bible study last night. Jesus came to fulfill the law. He came to fulfill the prophets. And as, as he did that, now all of a sudden there's a better high priest. There's a better priesthood. There's a better sanctuary. There's a better sacrifice. And that abrogates all of, or it doesn't abrogate it, it completes all of what the Jewish leadership administered to the nation. This is why they said, we're going to lose our place in our nation. We become irrelevant with this guy. And so it was envy that, that hung Jesus on the cross. This is why in Titus 3.3, 3, we read how God wants to deliver us from that. For we ourselves are also, were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. This is how people get sideways with one another. This is the whole principle behind the keeping up with the Joneses uh idea that that uh I think divides people all the time. So this this feeling of envy that that uh Laban's sons had, of course, infected Laban. Because maybe, maybe without the chatter of his sons, he's saying, well, okay, this is the deal we had, this is the way it's going. But now all of a sudden they're saying, dad, you must be some kind of fool letting this guy rip you off like that. So verse three, then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your family and I will be with you. Now now this becomes a kind of a watershed moment. Um, The Lord last spoke to Jacob 20 years before this. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But but the Lord is telling Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your family, and I will be with you. Now, this is, when he says return to the land of your fathers, this is uh, God working in Jacob now to have him uncouple himself for from perhaps the comfortable life that he has had with Jacob, or with Laban, rather. Yes, he was in servitude to Laban, but it was secure. He was doing well. He's got a burgeoning family. And so to think about, okay, i got to pack all this up. I've got to get all my kids gathered up. And I've got to take the flocks that I have. And I've got to go back hundreds of miles to to the land of Canaan. Um, The Lord had to work in him. And the Lord initially gave him a desire to go home we saw it when we were in chapter 30 verse 25 we read there in verse 25 of chapter 30 it came to pass when rachel had born joseph that jacob said to layman send me away that i may go to my own place and to my own country so now jacob is starting to have this itch to go back so the lord is, is nudging him that way but then the lord makes his present circumstances unbearable in terms of the conflict with Laban and Laban's sons, and then finally the Lord speaks to him directly, and we see it there in verse three when the Lord says, "Return to the land your fathers and to your family, and I will be with you." And this is very often the way the Lord works with us. We get this itch about something we want to do or or, or a direction we want to go, but you know we got the other side of our brain telling us, "Nah, you don't really want to do that. Nah, that will be very hard. Whatever." Then the Lord starts moving all of the furniture in your life. And before you know it, you feel like where you are is so uncomfortable that something's got to give. And then finally, you have clarity. I can tell you, Michelle and I went through this exact process when we ultimately changed our life and, and started this church, is that we could sense, you know, I, I could sense, because I was at the time serving in Calvary Chapel Cary, and, uh, you know, I was an elder of that church, and I was also teaching the junior high school and. And I started realizing that as I woke up every day, my focus, my attention, the burdens that I carried were not within the company that I was managing, that was with the kids I was teaching, the the things that we were doing in the church. Um, And and I started to have this discomfort that I was, you know, it was kind of like sitting on a picket fence. It's just not a comfortable place to sit. You can either be on this side or you can be on that side. And uh, and then before I knew it, the Lord was speaking very clearly. I mean, I had a sense of how wonderful it would be to just have the time to minister to people. But now I can't do that. I got kids, I got at that time a kid in college. I got a kid about to go to college. I got another kid. Uh, they're, they're in uh, private Christian school. And you, you just you got a whole litany of reasons why not, nah, can't do that. But then you start to go to the next phase where the Lord is Showing you how uncomfortable it is to be where you are in that moment. And then all of a sudden the clouds part and there's clarity. Mm -hmm. This is what you must do. But, but no, this is what you must do. And this is what, this is what's going on with Jacob. And I might just say, you may find this your experience in your life. Maybe some of you here have had that experience. I would guess Jeff and Linda had that experience. I would guess that Christina and Vince are, are, you know, in the midst of that kind of thing and, uh, you know, when you start pouring your life into kids and whatnot, you know, all of a sudden, you've got a lot of little friends at your house on a Friday night, you know? It's, so you track you, tracking along with this stuff, and then all of a sudden, there's clarity. Clouds part, the Lord speaks directly to you. And, and all of the objectives that you, or the objections that you lined up, as you were even considering this, just, just mere weeks ago, all of a sudden, they don't matter anymore. The clarity is what you you move towards, and so now our friend Jacob here he has clarity. The Lord is telling him, "Return to the land of your fathers and to your family, and I will be with you." So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah to the field to his flock. Notice he takes them away from everybody else. They go out into the field, um, and and uh, he and said to them, "I see your father's countenance; that it's not favorable toward me as before." But the God of my fathers has been with me. So he's telling him, look, things don't look too good here, but there's good news. The God of my fathers is with me. He spoke to me. And you know that with all my might, I have served your father. So he's, he's making his case to his wives that, look, I'm not running out trying to pull something, a fast one on your dad. You have witnessed these now twenty years that my service to your father was exemplary. Verse seven. Yet your father has deceived me and has changed my wages ten times. But God did not allow him to hurt me. Now we don't have um, we don't have all the details of how of, of all the nefarious things that that Laban did. We, we get a summary statement here. But knowing this person. As we've come to know him in the last several chapters, we know Laban is a master, wheeler, dealer, deceiver, cheater. Uh, uh, you know, he's all in for himself. And, and so Jacob's saying, look, you know how many times he's pulled the rug out from under me. He's changed the deal. And uh, he, verse 8, if he said thus, the speckled shall be your wages, then all the flocks bore speckled. And if he said thus, the streaked shall be your wages, then all the flocks bore streaked. So God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. So what what he's, clearly, what he's clearly demonstrating here is that God has been in the midst of this all along. We sometimes take God out of the, the equation when we're going through various trials, when we're going through various struggles, when we're having wonderful victories. We seem to think that well, when, when things are going well, it's because I did well. And when things aren't going so well, I must have messed something up. And we, we never add into the equation, well, wait a minute. God may have a purpose in the outcome of all of these things. And, and how things are going from a day-to-day basis has a lot to do with what God is ultimately trying to do in my life. In this case, what God is doing is he is, he is enriching Jacob because Jacob is going to be, again, one of the patriarchs of what will become the nation Israel. And so God is enriching him. And remember, all the cattle on 10,000 hills is the Lord's anyway. So he can direct those calves and those sheep and those rams and and lambs any way he wishes. And Laban, of course, being so devious and trying to hinder what God's ultimate purpose is, which is to move Jacob now back to the land of promise because that's where he's going to establish his family. Because he is doing that, God is operating according to the original promise that he gave to Abraham. Let me just remind you what that was. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. God's speaking to Abraham. And he's speaking to Abraham and by imputation to all of the progeny that would issue forth from from Abraham's uh, loins. And so, Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those that bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, the way this worked for Laban was while Laban was being decent with Jacob, Laban pr- prospered. Laban's flocks were, were, were few and, and, and weak before Jacob got there. He was not a man of immense wealth, he was a man of very modest wealth. But it was only when Jacob started working for him that his flocks grew, that he became prosperous. Laban even admitted that in the previous chapter. It's why he didn't want him to go. You know, he said that, you know, through divination I have learned that the God of your fathers is with you and because he's with you and because you're with me, I'm doing great. Why would I want you to leave? And so on the plus side of that promise that was given to Abraham Uh, He was blessing Jacob in a way, and so the Lord was blessing Laban. But now, as Laban is starting to be devious, envious, uh, undermining what what, uh, God is trying to do, he's on the curse side of that promise. And now he sees that, you know, as they struck this deal, it's always going in Jacob's favor. Jacob is getting enriched, and and the, and the flocks of, uh, of Laban are getting diminished. And I must say, I, we, we prayed this just uh, a while ago there when we were in our prayer time. It is that the way that particular promise cuts both ways that concerns me for our nation. Because we've had a marked difference in our foreign policy relative to Israel. And this this began in earnest with the uh, with the Obama administration. We had, and this is not a political statement. This is a biblical, factual statement. Okay, that during the Obama administration, our policy towards in- uh, Israel became decidedly less favorable. We had a respite during the Trump years, where uh, really some of the things that the Trump administration did were very pro-Israel. Not the least of which was finally recognizing Jerusalem as the capital and moving our embassy there. This was something every, pro- every president, probably back before Jimmy Carter, promised and never did. And, and Trump came along and said, yeah, sure, we'll do that. Boom. You know, I, I think it was the 70th anniversary of the country's founding. And um, they made a real nice coin that some of you have. Um, that commemorates that. I think they've got Cyrus on one side of the coin and Trump on the other, which is very significant for us Bible scholars. Um, But now in the current administration, we're kind of going back to where we were. And I think even more so for, for the climate activists within our government, they see Israel as a problem because Israel now all of a sudden is sitting atop of a tremendous supply of natural gas. And so now that rankles the climate crusaders of our government, but it also rankles Russia because now there is an alternative uh, as a supply of natural gas to the European continent that's not Russia. And they have a plan to maybe even route that natural gas through Egypt and then into Europe. And so this, this has geopolitical ramifications that rankle everybody, it seems, um, which by the way in another Bible study we might talk about how that might be a catalyst for the Ezekiel war but we're not there right now um, but where we are is looking at how the this particular promise to Abraham has affected our friend Laban and wondering um, if we <laughs> if we might be facing something similar so uh um, Verse 9, so God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. Ha, ha, ha. And it happened at that time when the flocks conceived that I lifted my eyes and saw a dream. And behold, the rams which leaped upon the flocks were streaked, speckled, and gray spotted. Now, when he talks about leaping upon the flocks, if you grew up on a farm, you know what he's talking about. Okay, this is when they're procreating. Um, And the angel of God spoke to me in a dream saying, Jacob. And I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes now and see all the rams which leap on the flocks are streaked, speckled, gray spotted, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. So the Lord is telling him, look, I, God, am controlling this mating process here. And just a brief aside, but God controls all mating processes in terms of the fruit of the womb not the underwear the fruit of the womb not the loom and God controls all of that and and he he directs it as he will and in this case he's he revealing to Jacob in the dream that I I God am the one that has prospered your flocks based on the deal you struck with Laban and uh And he says in verse 13, I am the God of Bethel where you anointed the pillar and where you made a vow to me. Now arise, get out of this land and return to the land of your family. Now when he talks about um, I am the God of Bethel where you anointed a pillar, just turn a page or two back to chapter 28 when we were there. Because in chapter 28, verse 18, this is where... This is where the Lord makes a vow, or Jacob makes a vow at Bethel. And in the 18th verse there, we read that then Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put at his head and set up a, as a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. And then in verse 20, we say, we read rather that Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and keep me in this way, that I am going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace then the Lord shall be my God. So this is now, the Lord has directed him at this point to go to the land of his mother, Rebekah, which Laban being her brother, go there to find your bride. And of course, he spies out Rachel and you know the story. <laughs> in the morning, it was Leah. And then seven years later, it was Rachel. But he said, okay, I will do this, Lord. I will go in that direction. I will do what you ask. But if you will be with me, And you will protect me during that time. And then you will bring me back to my father's house in peace. Then you will be my God. Now, we can talk all night about um, shouldn't be bargaining with God in that way. You know, it's like if then. We don't do if then statements with God. It's like, oh, you're God. Here I am, Lord. What will you have me do? You know, be more like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. I'm a man of unclean lips. Woe is me. What will you have me do? Send me. Um, But. This is the vow that is being referenced here when he says, and now back in our text, verse 13, I'm the God of Bethel, where you anointed the pillar, back in 28, in chapter 28, where you made a vow to me, if you keep me safe, get me here, keep me fed and clothed and sheltered, and then bring me back to my father's house, you will be my God. So God's calling him on that promise. Now arise, get out of this land, and return to the land Of your family. Now, when he's speaking about that, he's not talking about Haran, he's not talking about Ur of the Chaldees, he is now talking about the land that God has given his family, which is the land of Canaan. And here's where we do well um, to take the example of this as it applies in Jacob's life and understand that although we didn't have a a rock by our head that then we set up as a pillar and that we made a vow to God, we have committed our lives to the Lord when we name Jesus as our Lord and our Savior. And on the basis of the promise of God giving us eternal life through his Son and the redemption of our sins, we know that regardless of what we encounter in our lives, the Lord is with us. This is what the psalmist said in Psalm 118, Between verses 5 and 9, the psalmist is speaking here and he says, I called on the Lord in distress and the Lord answered me and set me in a broad place. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore I, shall see my, therefore, I shall see my desire on those who hate me. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. This is, this is a good section of Psalm to pray over this coming election cycle. You know, because there are some people that speak about the outcome of this election, like it's going to determine life and death, and it's not. No matter who is in power, no matter who is, is is making policy, the Lord is with us. He will never leave us nor forsake us. What can man do to us? Yeah, we can have all kinds of cockamamie laws in our country. Um, we can suffer because of the idiocy of policies that are put in place by those who have different uh, value system and goals than we do. But in the ultimate analysis, all that matters is that we have succeeded in the most important endeavor that a human being can undertake in their entire life on the earth, and that is to receive the only provision that God has made for our sins. I wish, that, I wish there was a way to universally convey this idea that human, fellow human being, I am here as part of your future. This is what I told the kids, by the way, in Manipur. I said, hi, you might be wondering why there's a man standing in front of you who's old enough to be the grandfather of every kid in this room. And you might be saying, what can I possibly learn from this guy? And so I just want you to know that I am you, except I'm from the future, your future. And and that was the way I set it up, is to say that the things that I'm saying, I'm not saying because I oppose you. I say because I'm with you and I was you. And these are things that became abundantly clear through 50 more years of living than any of you in this room have. And and the principal lesson is there's one thing, one thing that will define whether you are a successful human being or not. And that is what did you do with the only provision that God made for your sins? If you ignore that provision, nothing else matters. No amount of money can be enough, no no amount of fame, fortune, friendships, enemies, there's no way to distinguish yourself on any permanent basis if you miss that one thing. And by the way, if you if you receive that one thing, everything else is just cream. Cream on top. And and so When we see the assurances that God is giving to our friend Jacob here, it sounds trite. Oh, Jacob, do what I'm telling you. It's going to be okay. I'm going to be with you. Yeah, okay, thanks, God. Now, let's see. How am I going to manage this? No, that—that's not only is that enough. It's everything. And so Jacob could have this confidence as like, okay, I'm going to leave this guy. I'm Surely I'm going to make an enemy of him. And then I got a long journey back now with 11 kids and a whole lot of animals and two wives that hate each other. So, so he, he reads there. Um, let's get back on track here. He said, lift up your eyes now. See all the rams. Okay, we saw that part. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed the pillar and where you made a vow to me. Now arise, get out of this land, return to the land of your family. So he's telling Rachel and Leah this whole story. This is, this is, what, the, this is what the Lord showed me. This is why we got to do this, is that God is with us and he's telling us to do this. Now listen to what Rachel and Leah say, verse 14. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there still any portion or inheritance for us in our father's house? Are we not considered strangers by him? For he has sold us and he has also completely consumed our money. For all these riches which God has taken from our father are really ours. And our children's. Now then, whatever God says to you, you do it. That is the most unspiritual (laughs) reference to god i've ever heard they're not like oh god said that well then come what may we need to do this you no know, they said we don't have anything here our father's ripped us off he's not going to give us anything now he has sons so they're going to get whatever he has so let's they're making a commercial decision here there's nothing here for us we, we, we he squ- what what was ours he squandered he must be referring somehow to the dowry the dowry that Jacob paid was his labor and then the Lord took that labor and and directed it back to Jacob to enrich him at the expense of Laban so they're basically saying well the money's here with you so wherever you go we're going you know (laughs) by the way I should point out in our entire now exposure to Leah and Rachel this becomes the first thing that they agreed on Everything else was conflict and hatred for each other. But on this point, they're in agreement. Then Jacob arose, verse 17, and set his sons and his wives on camels. And he carried away all his livestock and all his possessions which he had gained, his acquired livestock which he had gained in Paddan Aram, to go to his father Isaac in the land of Canaan. Now, Pat and Aram, just to remind you, pretty much in the place where Turkey, Syria, and Iraq all kind of come together. And that's that's where we're talking about. So they're gonna go from there now down to the land of Canaan. Now Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel had stolen the house idols that were her father's. Now, screeching on the brakes here, we we have to ask, what in the world? They're making a hasty retreat. I I think they would want it to be easy rather than hard. But for some reason, Rachel sneaks into her dad's tent and steals the family idols. Now, again, keep in mind, Laban's family, pagans, pagan worshipers. Remember back in chapter 30, Laban even admitted that through divination, he determined that the god of of Abraham and Isaac was squarely in Jacob's corner. Uh, And again, we don't know how legit that was. Uh, We we take it on face value because the scripture told us that. So we know that he does not worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's got his own thing going on. And it was very common in that day and and in that part of the world that every family would have these little idols, these little idols. symbols and they would worship those and those would be the family gods so to speak and Rachel now goes in and takes those and and there's a lot of speculation about why in the world would she do that Um, maybe she herself worshiped those idols because keep in mind at this stage of the Lord's communication with the patriarchs it's rather sparse it's not based upon any law that's been given yet it's not based upon any kind of uh regular form of worship the lord will show up as he shows up and they have an encounter but there's no organized way of abraham isaac and jacob approaching god uh, regular communing with god and so there's a whole lot of room for false worship in the midst of the people that surround Jacob, including his wives. So it's entirely possible that Rachel took them because she worshiped these idols. It's also possible she took them because she did not want her father to use them in the divination process to figure out where they are or where they went. Um, Another theory that's been proposed is that these idols very often would would be exchanged as evidence of a of a financial transaction. And so she's saying, well, we've taken all this wealth. It's, it's ours. But it would make it easier if anyone questioned it if we had these little idols. So I'll go ahead and take those. We don't know. Um, we know that it could have caused them a great deal of problems, but the Lord is looking out for them. So we read on. Uh And Jacob stole away, unknown to Laban the Syrian, and that he did not tell him that he intended to flee. So he fled with all that he had. He arose and crossed the river and headed towards the mountains of Gilead. Now, we might fault Jacob by pointing out that he felt like he had to sneak away, like he was doing something wrong. Um, The Lord had told him, I will be with you. Don't worry, I'll be with you. I favored you purposefully. And I'm directing you to go back to the land that I've given to your family. And so it's conceivable that Jacob could have showed up at Laban's tent door, said, see you later, pops. We're leaving. And all this stuff that we have, it's ours because God said so, and then go. But he didn't do that. He, he snuck out. Verse 22, and Laban was told on the third day that Jacob had fled Then he took his brethren with him and pursued him for seven days journey and overtook him in the mountains of Gilead. You might be tempted to ask if Jacob had a three day head start. How does Laban catch him? Well, keep in mind, (laughs) Jacob's traveling with 11 kids, two wives, camels, sheep, rams, goats. It's slow moving. And so he's overtaken and... uh, God came to Laban the Syrian in a dream by night, verse 24, and said to him, be careful, you speak to Jacob, neither good nor bad. Now it's interesting that the Lord gave him that direction. Don't speak to him in a good way or a bad way. And the only thing I could figure from that, I understand clearly don't speak to him in a bad way because I'm not on your side. I think what he said, don't speak to him in a good way, what he's saying is because I know it would be disingenuous. You would be, you know, spitting out uh, snake oil here and and you're not going to fool me. So don't even try. So Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the mountains and Laban with his brethren pitched in the mountains of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, what have you done that you have stolen away unknown to me and carried away my daughters like captives taken with the sword? Why did you flee away secretly and steal away from me and not tell me? for I might have sent you away with joy and songs and a timbrel and harp. Hey, we wanted to throw a party for you. We wanted to make this a really huggy, kissy uh, goodbye. How could you just rob us of that joy? I think the Lord probably tapping Laban on the shoulder. Ah, 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 what did I say? Don't say good or bad. And you did not allow me to kiss my sons and my daughters. Now you have done foolishly in so doing. And so he's, he's trying to shame Jacob for what he did. He's trying to say, hey, we're a family. Why would you leave like this and not say goodbye and have a nice meal and a party and dancing and, and I could kiss my grandchildren and all that. Hogwash. Hogwash. He said, so, of course, the shaming part doesn't work, so he does what all bullies do, which is make it known how badly I could hurt you if I wanted to. He says uh, in verse 29, it is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, be careful that you speak to Jacob neither good nor bad. Interesting. He admits that Jacob's God, the God, spoke to him and put restraint upon him that if I were Jacob would give me oodles of confidence in this discussion and as you see it does he says and now you have surely gone because you are great you greatly long for your father's house but why did you steal my gods so now we know that Laban understands that those little idols that he had in his tent are missing Then Jacob answered and said to Laban, because I was afraid, for I said, perhaps you would take your daughters from me by force. Now, let's please not lose sight of the fact that Laban worked 14 years for those two women. That's more than a dowry that they would have ever commanded in any other context. Not to mention that he didn't even want the first wife. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, so the idea that, that Laban has any claim to these girls is off the table. Verse 32, with whomever you find, for, so Jacob is now speaking. He says, with whomever you find your gods, do not let them live. In the presence of our brethren, identify what I have of yours and take it with you. For Jacob did not know that Rachel, Rachel had stole them. Rachel's the favored wife. Here's Jacob saying, look, if you find that scoundrel that took your gods, they should be put to death. He doesn't realize that he's actually condemning his wife here. And Laban went into Jacob's tent, into Leah's tent, and into the two maids' tents, but he did not find them. Then he went out, went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's tent. Now Rachel had taken the household idols, put them in the camel's saddle, and sat on them. And Laban searched all about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, let it not displease my Lord that I cannot rise before you, for the manner of women is with me. And he searched, but did not find the household idols. Now they had very strict uh, protocol concerning a woman in her time. And, uh, and so this became a perfect uh, defense, if you will. Then Jacob was angry and rebuked Laban. See, now Jacob is, is getting ticked off. This has gone too far. And Jacob answered and said to Laban, what is my trespass? What is my sin that you have so hotly pursued me? Although you have searched all my things, what part of your household things have you found? Set it here before my brethren and your brethren that they may judge between us both. These 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes, your female goats have not miscarried their young and I have not eaten the rams of your flock. So he's saying, I'm not even living off of the animals that I have been watching, that which is torn by beasts, I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it. You required it of my hand, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. The the general uh, understanding was, if a shepherd was watching the sheep or the animals of another man, and a wild animal—a a bear, a lion, a leopard—comes and tears, you know, attacks that animal. If the shepherd could bring the carcass of the animal back to the owner, he was excused from the loss of that animal. But what Jacob is saying is, I didn't even do that. If I lost one to an animal, I would just give you one of mine to replace it. There I was in the day the drought consumed me, the frost by night and my sleep departed from my eyes. You can tell that Jacob has probably practiced this particular speech for like 10 years, you know, dealing with Laban. Thus I have been in your house 20 years. I have served you 14 years for your two daughters, six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages 10 times. Again, that reference, we don't get the detail of how Laban did that, but it's totally within the character of the man we've come to know in the pages of this uh, book. Unless the father of my, uh, the God of my father, the God of Abraham and, and the fear of Isaac, had been with me, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God has seen my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. So he knows exactly now what the Lord is doing. The Lord is calling Laban to account for his bad treatment, for his underhanded dealings, for his trying to thwart the, the, the purpose of God through this man, Jacob. And Laban answered and said to Jacob, These daughters are my daughters, and these children, he would be referring to the grandchildren, are my children, and this flock is my flock. All that you see is mine. But what can I do this day to these my daughters and their children whom they have born? Now, therefore, come, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So here is Laban in his last attempt to somehow have the upper hand here, he declares that everything before him, which is Jacob's wives that he paid for with 14 years of labor, all of the grandchildren that uh, basically came from Jacob and the wives and and the maids, and all these flocks that they had bargained for, and Laban was happy with the bargain at the front end of it, he declares that it's all his, but because I'm such a great guy, I'm going to let you have... All of this, which, by the way, is his anyway, okay? So that's the way this guy uh, does business. Now, therefore, come let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. Then Jacob said to his brethren, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there on the heap. To have a meal in this context was basically a way of consummating a covenant. And Laban called it, Jagar Sahadutha, but Jacob called it Galid. Basically, heap of witnesses is what they are referring to, this place and this heap of rocks. And Laban said, The heap is a witness between you and me this day. Therefore the name was called Galid. Also Mizpah, because he said, May the Lord watch between you and me when we are absent from one another. Basically, what they are striking here is a non-aggression pact. We're going we're gonna to set up this heap of stones, which is a witness to you and to me, that if either one of us crosses that boundary heading towards the other, the one who's being invaded can immediately take lethal action against the other. So in other words, stay away from me, I'll stay away from you. If you afflict my daughters or if you take other wives besides my daughters, although no man is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, here is this heap and here is this pillar which I have placed between you and me. This heap is a witness and this pillar is a witness that I will not pass beyond this heap to you and you will not pass beyond this heap and pillar to me for harm. The God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, the God of their fathers, judge between us. And Jacob swore by the fear of his father, Isaac. So Isaac saying, that's fine with me. I am happy to go on my way and never see you again. And by the way, throughout the rest of the Genesis record, we never encounter Laban again. Then Jacob offered a sacrifice on the mountain and called his brethren to eat bread. And they ate bread and stayed all night on the mountain. And early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his sons and daughters and blessed them Then Laban departed and returned to his place. Never to be seen in the scripture again. So the Lord has now got Jacob on the way back to the land. He's got what will become 11 of the 12 patriarchs. Um, Benjamin is yet to be born. Um, But you see now how this sojourn, which seemed like, gosh, this is such a, not a waste of time, but, but unproductive time. In God's plan was very productive. It shaped the character of Jacob in a way that now has him humbled before the Lord. He's a completely different man from the man he was when he left the land of Canaan to start heading towards Paddan Aram. And he now has these children. He has his family. The, The scene is now set for the Lord to begin to build the nation Israel. And uh, many lessons for us as as we see how the Lord dealt with these people in that context. And this is what I say when we read the Old Testament. Yes, we want to know this biblical history. It's very important for us to know because it helps us understand the rest of the word of God and most especially the prophetic word of God. But we should not we should be careful not to miss the, the life lessons that are going on with the way in which the Lord is dealing with people who are in real life situations. These people are as real as you and me. These are not, you know, saints with little yellow discs over their head, holier than thou. These are real people with real uh, faults and and, um, characteristics that are not unlike us. And yet the Lord is working in their midst and using them for his purpose. And I believe he is doing that in the midst of us as well. So let's go to him in prayer. Father, we thank you, God, for uh, just teaching us tonight, for, for guiding us through your spirit and through the word of God to understand the most important things about the history of your people, Lord, and why um, it is so significant, Lord, that the nation Israel be an ensign for you, Lord, not only in the time of Jacob, but in this time in which we live, Father. And Lord, thank you for... Um, all of the things that you demonstrated to us through the lives of these people and the manner in which you dealt with them and the manner in which you stayed true to them even when they were not faithful to you, Lord, and the assurances that we get through their experiences, Lord, fortify us in our faith. So thank you, God, for meeting us here tonight. We pray all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.